0: This week on the podcast, we're having a conversation about language. Today's guest is my very good friend, Rachel Callender, and she says that our language shapes our landscape. Rachel's late daughter Evie was born with a very rare chromosomal condition and during the two and a half years of her life Rachel learned a lot about the use of language in the health system and she spent the subsequent years continuing to explore the impact and implications of how it's used both to a positive and negative effect. Today I give her a call to explore how we as leaders can use language to create more safe connected and empowering spaces for those that we lead. I'll write it and we'll do it live.
1: 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4,
2: 3, 2, 1, lift off.
0: Hi everyone and welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. My name is Shane Hatton. I'm a speaker, author and mentor from Melbourne, Australia and I'm passionate about all things leadership and communication. I realized recently that I know some really clever people in my network and I thought it would be a fun idea to be able to take some of their cleverness and share it with the rest of the world. Now through the wonders of technology, I'm broadcasting my phone calls with clever people just for you and really the premise is quite simple. I just want to be able to ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders joining me on the phone is Rachel calendar she is a TEDx presenter speaker trainer and award-winning artist she's also the author of two books the superpower baby project and superpower kids which are books that celebrate the lives and abilities of children with a range of disabilities and conditions and they were inspired by her late daughter Evie she isn't just an expert in this space she absolutely lives and breathes it and I'm so honored to have her on the phone Rachel, big warm welcome to the podcast
1: Thank you so much. It's so exciting to talk
0: to you, Shane. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too. We we did a course together recently and um, we were in the program together. We'd kind of seen each other from a distance and we we kind of didn't really know each other too well. And then through the process of that, we became best friends. And this is know. you know the kind of the product of our, our conversation <laughs> through that program.
1: I know. I love that. It's so good.
0: So one of the things that I do at the start of every podcast is get uh, give people a chance to get to know you and so I do these fast facts and so it's the three questions which is um, where were you born uh, what was your very first job and then what are you doing with yourself now
1: okay I was born in Dunedin New Zealand and um, in 1982 and my first job was oh it was a horrible job I hated every minute of it I was at <laughs> I worked in a A little movie theater in Omeroo, which is where I grew up. Um, It had like it was an opera house with one one cinema, and it was yeah, it was just the worst. I stank like stale popcorn all the time, and (laughs) I had a really bad worth ethic. I knew very on that I wasn't built for nine to five jobs. So from my very first job.
0: I have, I'm still yet to, to this day to find someone that has come from New Zealand. There's a person that I don't like. I think everyone that I have met from New Zealand has been some of the friendliest, kindest people that I've met in my life. Um, and so tell, what, tell us a little bit about what you do with yourself now.
1: So what I do with myself now is I do a lot of speaking, um, usually around the world, but these days via Zoom. But I help health professionals with their communication and their language, especially at diagnosis to help build positive relationships with their patients and to communicate really difficult information in a way that's clear, that's kind, and that's understood to kind of help not only the patient and their health outcomes, but also the health professional, so they're not wasting their time, and so they're not feeling the pressure of burnout and compassion fatigue. So I'm kind of a bridge between the two worlds, helping um, everybody be the best version of themselves in that space. And it's, it's really interesting work and it's it's quite unusual work because I am not a health professional at all. i never studied health. I actually have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree and a major in photography. So it's quite, <laughs> it's quite a different place to land. But um, Can we
0: kind of wind back the clock a little bit and understand some of your journey into the practice and, and what took you from photography to do what you're doing here now?
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I think that's an important kind of gap to close there. So, yeah, I was um, a wedding and portrait photographer in New Zealand for about a decade after I graduated. And uh, within that time frame, I had a little daughter who was born with a very rare chromosome condition. And so at a very kind of, I was 25 when I had this little daughter, Evie, and I was thrown into the world of medicine when she was born with this rare condition. And it was just the language that was used um, right from the very beginning moments of her diagnosis, it was incredibly traumatising. Like it almost added to the trauma of the experience. And so, you know, the words used were, I didn't understand them. They were confusing. They were um, deficit focused. You know, a lot of the language, especially around disability and difference, you know, words like disabled, abnormal, mutated, incompatible with life. Um, just a lot of those big, very heavy words, you know, retarded. Um, this language was being used over my daughter. And I realized, I'm like, you know, I don't want to buy into this language because that's not who she is to me. And so from that moment, I realized the power of language can really shape a person's landscape and how they mm. perceive their future. And when language is negative, the perception of the future is negative, And it's a lot harder to find meaning or purpose or courage or even the ability to Understand your own reality and how you fit into your own context all of a sudden when you're um, given a diagnosis. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. And then after she passed away when she was two and a half, I then spent um, a little while photographing a whole um, bunch of children with a range of chromosomal and genetic conditions in New Zealand to celebrate their abilities and to kind of reframe that challenging and deficit language of disability. So it was a really hopeful artistic photographic art book mm-hmm. um, to really celebrate ability and, and difference and identity. And so from there, I kind of um, got a bit of a following, and it was a crowdfunded book and and then a documentary um, TV series, did a little documentary on it, and then the TEDx crew Saw it and then asked me to do a TED talk. And so I, I did a TED talk in Auckland, which was my very first ever public speaking wow. <laughs> like just straight into the deep end. And then from there, health professionals said, Hey, look, this is really important. This is a message that we need. And um, we really struggle with this because we're not taught around the importance of language and communication. And so from there, that's when I got invited to speak at health um, conferences and it's just kind of grown from there and I've become really passionate around the challenges that not only the parents face but also the health professionals because I've learned that a lot of the health professionals are waking up and one of them told me he said I wake up every day with the inescapable fear of failure Wow! you know they've got this immense pressure to know what's going on to, to fix people um, and they're worst, most vulnerable, most in pain time of their life. Um, But I also learned that communication is one of the biggest um, challenges that health professionals and patients face because they're not speaking the same language.
0: Yeah. When we find ourselves in situations where we feel potentially out of our comfort zone or we don't know what to do, we default to what we know, right? And if you were in the medical profession, you default to your education, you default to your training and um, sometimes that language that's used in the medical training side of things um isn't a familiar language for the people that they're communicating with right
1: exactly exactly and it, because it is such a familiar tongue to the health professionals i've learned you know upwards of 10 years to learn this language the medical language and then the regular person language doesn't often translate
0: it's obviously so it's resonated incredibly- with a lot of people in terms of the conversations around language and and Mm-hmm. Really early on, that's kind of where the, the book and is it the Superpower Baby Project?
1: Yeah, Superpower Baby Project. I probably didn't even say that. I was all busy telling the no. story. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell, us, a, tell us a
0: bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's called Superpower Baby Project because I became aware very early on in Evie's life that she was experiencing the world a little bit differently to other people. So I was constantly used to people seeing her for the first time and asking me things like, "What's wrong with your child?" You know, "What's wrong with her?" And I hated then rattling off her diagnosis. You know, the big words that nobody really understood. And it just felt like I let my child down every time I said, "You know, well, she can't walk and she can't talk and she's got partial trisomy nine and partial monosomy six and multiple ventricular septal defects." Like those things don't mean anything mm. to anybody. But this was the language of her her diagnosis that had almost become her identity. But to me, that wasn't wasn't who she was. And I realized that um, she had this, I think it was an electromagnetic sensitivity that nobody else had. Like she used to cry when we drove under electrical pylons or whenever we went through electric sliding doors. And I noticed it because it happened so often. So I just started saying that she had superpowers you know kind of like a baby magneto of x-men or something you know just <laughs> as a <laughs> light-hearted way to describe that particular phenomenon of yeah. Evie but then once I thought about her more and her character and her personality and the things she was teaching me and those around her you know I realized that who she was was a really powerful um unique and really beautiful human completely opposite to the language that had been used around her and so the superpower mentality and language helped, um, I guess it gave her some humanity. So when people then asked me, you know, what's wrong with your child? Once I had this new language, I could say, you know, well, nothing is wrong with her. She's actually got superpowers. And they'd kind of look at me a bit strange. And then they'd say, well, what do you mean? And then I got to reframe that whole conversation around her abilities, the things that she loved doing, the things that I loved about her. And then instead of them seeing this, collection of failing body parts in front of them and something that needed to be fixed or something that was broken, they saw a human being because I described a human being. Wow. And I think that was such a powerful change. And so the fear of difference of another person um, just completely melted away in that moment. There was a connecting point because we we could say, look, we're both human and and here are the things that Evie loves. And oh my gosh, that's a little bit similar to you. you know? wow.
0: Yeah. Do you think as leaders we underestimate the the impact and the value and the importance of language?
1: I think so. I think we're not even aware of it. Mm. I think we get so used to it and caught up in maybe the jargon of our industry or of the culture that we kind of forget where the heart is and what the spirit is and what we're trying to be or trying to do and that connection is missed Um because we're so used to this weird jargon that doesn't mean anything. Mm. I think maybe we hide
0: behind it a little bit. Even from the perspective of our own, the language we use about ourselves, um, do you think that that plays an impact in how we see ourselves and the identity that we carry and how we show up every day?
1: Oh, hugely. And I think that's a whole other conversation (laughs) as well. But yeah, the language we use for ourselves, like our own self-talk is really powerful. And I remember once I was listening to one of um, my mentors and your mentor too was uh, one of my first interactions with Matt church and he was talking about self-talk and considering the way that we speak to ourselves. Mm. And he said, you know, (laughs) we wouldn't speak to our best friend or, you know, a child in the way we speak to ourselves, like the way we speak to ourselves can be actually quite abusive sometimes. Yeah. Um, And we think that that's okay, Mm. but I, I I don't know if it is. I, I mean, I think it does so much damage.
0: It, it really does. And it shapes the way we show up every day. And, and we Definitely. feel, we, we feel like we, if we, if we, um, we talk to ourselves in a negative way and we view ourselves in a negative way, it often shows up in the way we treat other people and the way we interact with other people and people go, you know, you need to be nicer to other people. And actually we probably just need to be nicer to ourselves as a starting point, uh, into that whole conversation. Yeah. I a hundred
1: percent agree with that. And it's a lot harder <laughs>
0: to do. It, it is. It's really, really hard to do. Yeah. And, and as you started, um, going and hearing stories from other parents, because obviously part of the the project around the Superpower Baby project was to talk to other parents. Um, what did you notice the impact of language in the way that um, other people experienced? Was it similar to yourself? Like, what were some of the stories that you heard and, and learned? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. And um, it was really powerful. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I walked into 75 strangers' homes, you know, <laughs> kind wow. of going on about superpowers. But the thing that just blew me away was pretty much 100% of the families shared the same language with me. They said, you know, our child is teaching us perseverance, kindness, unconditional love. With we're, uh, we're braver. We're more compassionate. We're more patient. You know, they've been through hell and back, a lot of these parents, but they have they have become bigger and, I, I don't know, just a beautiful version of themselves through the experience of having a child with a disability. And I found that overwhelmingly impactful and empowering. And it was in just such stark contrast against the language that we've been given to to describe disability as, you know, that deficit focused, subtractive language. But here these parents were saying, We now are emulating some of the humanity's highest ideals. You know, this is what our child has taught us. Some of these important values that the world needs most right now
0: yeah well, I often I find that so deeply moving. And there's a great quote that I often think of that that is that um, uh, there was someone else who was doing similar research, the name has escaped to me, but it, he he said that um in conversations with people, he often found that people ended up grateful for the things that they would have given anything to avoid. And uh, and those are the experiences yeah. that time and time again, people would never want or wish some of these experiences, but what it teaches them what they learn from it is one of those things that they become deeply grateful for.
1: Definitely, definitely. It wasn't Andrew Solomon by chance, was it?
0: Possibly could have been. I love that man. I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> and so, so you've had this experience, right? This has taken you through this journey of understanding the, the 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 real weight that our words can hold, and in those conversations. Mm-hmm. And and now you find yourself in an environment um, where you're helping people to navigate how their language impacts on on others. Uh, what are the th- big things that you've noticed in the work that you're doing now? What are you learning from the experiences that you're having with people?
1: It's overwhelmingly positive what I'm learning is that people really want to understand the impact of language and they want to do their best to change the way they speak especially mm. the health professionals which I find um, incredibly encouraging you know they're, they've already they're, they're often right at the edge of their coping as well but they still want to be better and I um, I heard a lot of parents talk negatively about the experience of the first words that were spoken when their child was diagnosed Mm. and how angry they were at the doctors and I remember feeling angry myself and just hating the health professionals and and the big bad health professionals and and but in talking to the the real humans and and the health professional you know they don't want to come to work to do a bad job they're doing Mm. their best as well and it's like how can we help everybody without making somebody wrong. Like how can we kind of teach and empower and encourage um, without kind of bashing them over the head and saying you're bad and terrible and you're making it hard and it's difficult. And what I'm learning is when, you know, the trauma of a parent or a patient is met with the trauma and the fear of a health professional, like that trauma and fear is batting up against each other. And that's the space where communication has to land. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So somebody has to be the one to go, you know what, I need to take a step back and maybe take a little bit more time and make sure that what I'm saying is being understood. And that actually does have to come from the health professional first. Mm. So it's kind of about reframing and re-changing the um the idea of what a medical consultation can look like or should look like.
0: Yeah. I mean, like your, your space is obviously within the, the medical, um, sphere, which is, um, almost amplified because of a lot of the the jargon, the medical, um, you know, language that sits around that, but this is a broad, um, conversation, Uh, every organization, like if you're a leader and you show up into an organization, you genuinely want to do your best. And you've got employees who you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis who, again, potentially have their own set of fears or uncertainties or, and then somewhere in the middle of that, we have to meet with the language that we use and to communicate this common language and make sure that we both feel understood and we both feel heard and we're both trying to ultimately do our best.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in that space, there's a lot of assumption. Mm. We kind of, we don't actually acknowledge if there's any kind of ambiguity. We We use jargon to pretend that we know what we're talking about because we're mm. so afraid of maybe looking silly or not. Understanding, and so we shut ourselves down, and then, then we kind of secretly resent whatever's been said because we're too afraid to challenge it. But it's like, how can we have more explicit conversations and be really honest with the language we're using? Mm. And and that's often a challenge that especially the leaders are facing. It's like they don't really know what's going on, and then they feel like they they're responsible for fixing everything, but they don't even really know where the problems are. And so that just there's a lot of guesswork.
0: Mm. And a lot of opportunity to, to miss each other um, and exactly. to not meet and to, to feel like we're saying one thing, but they're hearing another or they're not actually understanding what we're saying because we lean on the things that we know um, rather than sitting in a space with a person to, uh, to have these conversations where we can both connect and, and meet in the middle. And like, what yeah. do you think are some of the big things that get in the way of that communication happening um, in a positive way?
1: I think fear is a big one. Fear of getting it wrong, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of upsetting um, somebody, fear of conflict is a Mm. huge one. I have a matrix that I've kind of drawn around language because I think it sort of potentially falls into four quadrants. Mm. So there's kind of two axes. There's a positive and negative, and then a jargon and an informative. And then Mm. where positive and jargon meet, that's kind of patronizing language. It's where a lot of cliches fit and positive jargon bit, right like
0: that's positive yeah, jargon yeah, like wow. it sounds
1: good sounds good but nobody really It doesn't mean anything. It's sort of patronizing cliche. It's a bit fluffy and it doesn't land. It actually comes from a space of fear as well. It's well-meaning because people want to avoid the conflict. And Mm. so that's why it's like, I think you want to hear this. I'm going to say it because I think that's what you, is going to make you feel better, even if I don't really believe it. So it kind of, it smells a bit off, you know, and and it lands off and then the person receiving it is just like, well, you know.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Shrug it off a bit.
1: Exactly. And so it doesn't, do anything and then there's the jargon um, informative which no jargon negative sorry I'm getting confused but negative jargon that's a confusing language so it's negative because it's confusing and it doesn't actually do anything it causes more damage and mm. so that's where you get a lot of well in the medical world or potentially in business world there's a lot of acronyms and a lot of um, technical language and if mm. you don't speak that then you, you're not on the same page and you're kind of excluded from the experience of connecting with the conversation Mm. completely and so when somebody's confused um it's that's a very vulnerable space to be in when you're confused and then i mean it might not you know the the culture might not be safe enough to ask questions or clarify or maybe you might feel stupid if you're in a business meeting you're like actually i don't understand what that means because you you know you're supposed to know because this is the language of the industry you know yeah And so it's confusing and isolating and alienating.
0: And it shows up in different ways, right? Like uh, the Mm -hmm. feeling of, of being on the outside of the conversation feels isolating and feels cold and feels lonely. And that can often show up as anger or hurt or frustration or even just toxic behaviors, right?
1: Definitely, definitely, because it's embarrassing to feel like you don't understand something in front of people. Mm. And that makes you, yeah, again, there's the anger underneath that as well. And that, um, yeah, the embarrassment, I, I remember just, I hate being embarrassed. That's one of my most unbearable kind of feelings or states, especially in front of other people. And so being confused in front of others is just horrible. Mm. And I, I, I don't think I'm <laughs> the only one, I think being confused and embarrassed in front of others is is really unsafe, yeah, because, you know, you avoid it at all costs.
0: So there's, yeah. as a leader, it's, again, this, we're talking about both sides of this. We're talking about the language mm. you use as a leader, but also the language that you receive as a recipient is that if you feel like it's positive jargon, you walk away with that sense of it, it didn't hit the mark, it felt too cliche. If it's yeah. negative jargon, you feel confused. And if you're isolated and, and you, as a leader, you have the ability to have, to cause a person to feel um uh isolated or lonely or to feel on the outside of the conversation or to feel um uh what was the word you used for the positive jargon patronized, patronized. yeah that's 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 yeah. a nice that's that's a, a nice description that's probably what people would have experienced or felt if someone's spoken at them like with the assumption that you should know what this means and um or it doesn't feel like it's yeah it just doesn't it hasn't hit the mark for people i know
1: and then it, there's a le- level deeper as well where it's um informative negative so it's you know what it means but it's a very negative experience and that's kind of that's destructive language mm. so it's almost it's very personal it's kind of um I guess in business it could be kind of put downs but you know in the medical context it's especially words like retarded or mutated it's or even you know dysmorphic and disabled and it's those words that take the humanity away from a person you know mm. these words aren't even used culturally anymore like they used to really hurt people but in a medical context they used to diagnose but so when there's that it's really difficult um and there are a lot of people that hate that word um especially the r word it is you know Mm. medical language and i think in business and in different industries there will be words and language used that has that same effect that soul-destroying kind of attack on your heart your humanity and your personhood um so that's where the informative negative comes from because it's understood that it's felt deeply hurtfully.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I think most of the time, um, speaking kind of, I guess, broadly, people wouldn't stop to think about what is the language we use here in our environment that's normal for us that could be dehumanizing or that could be isolating or that could be patronizing that we've never stopped to consider how this language might cause someone else to feel.
1: Yeah, I don't think we think about it at all. I don't think it just becomes so ingrained and culturally, you know, it just kind of keeps rolling on down and there's a hierarchy of business and until someone kind of stands up or, you know, there's a lawsuit involved, which is often what happens in the medical world, um, or someone's been deeply hurt, it doesn't come to light until it's kind of really extremely bad. But I think there's subtle kind of negative... Things going on culturally that are deeply affected by language.
0: Mm. Is there a is there a positive, informative kind of space? <laughs> You're so good.
1: You're so good. Yes, that's the final quadrant. Oh, positive thank informative <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so uh, this is what I call empowering language, mm. and the positive, informative. Like it's clear communication. It's language that seeks to understand, and encourage. Um, and build up and connect this language actually does less talking and more asking mm. and I think that's the difference so it's kind of the solution as well as the um, the output I guess yeah. so it it kind of it takes more time it sort of sits and goes right it, it first asks I guess and I mean as an example I remember when Evie was first diagnosed with her big long difficult diagnosis um we'd been triggered to see a genetics uh, counselor and I didn't really understand anything about anything. And it was a chromosomal issue. But the first thing he said to me was, what do you know about chromosomes? You know, And everything up until that point, I hadn't understood. And I'd felt patronized and confused and dehumanized from all of the other interactions. So this was the first example of language that sought to understand where was my baseline knowledge. Where were we going to grow from as a team like he had the knowledge medically and I was in need of some of that knowledge like it's when you you need knowledge to be able to be transferable you know when somebody has important information and knowledge and it needs to go to the other person but there's the barrier of language in between that stops that connection and that flow of information and then it's a waste of everybody's time Mm. so him sitting me down and saying what do you know about chromosomes and me saying you know I don't know anything I couldn't even draw one he then began his entire conversation around my beginning point. Wow. And I think that's maybe where leaders, especially in business, and especially when there's changes, like where are we at right now? What is our beginning point? Um, and I think it, it, it needs to ask a lot of questions. And often I, I do a lot of workshops with um, not just health professionals, but leadership teams as well. And, as a kind of a beginning point to ask some of these questions and get that empowering communication flowing, I have kind of four questions that I encourage um, leadership teams to work through together as a group. Mm. And the first question is, "What are you proud of?" And then imagine a whole group of people talking about what they're proud of and what mm. they're excited about, and like what it kind of speaks to the humanity of that organisation and who's in the room and who's in the team, and like what are we proud of individually and collectively in this space. And then the next question, you know, what do you hope for? Like, what is the future kind of capability here? What's the mm. dignity that we want to bring into this world through the work that we're doing together? Like, what do we hope for? What are what are we working towards? Mm. And then and this is a really powerful one. Like, what are you afraid of? Like, being able to talk openly about the fears that a team has, a group has, you know, I think is the most... <laughs> beautiful thing like a leadership team could do for the organization Mm. what a confronting
0: conversation that would be for people who aren't used to having this space but what what a an environment that you could shape by allowing and being open with one another about what genuinely you're afraid of
1: huge it's huge and it is incredibly confronting because we don't do it enough we Mm. don't talk about our fears because we are afraid of We're afraid. We're afraid. It hurts. And I think sometimes we feel like if we reveal what we're afraid of, um, the fear of rejection or that seeking of comfort through the um, sharing of our fears would be denied, and then that just creates more pain. Mm. So I think that's why it's not happening, but it's one of the most important things, I think, as as an organization, as a team, to talk about fear. To name it, I think... We've talked about this. The things that you can't name, you can't grieve, or you can't fix, or you can't work on, because mm. no, it's it's so big that it's but it's in the room. But everyone's kind of ignoring this big, mountainous, disastrous big ball of pain. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's still there. But if we don't talk about it, it's not going to go away. It's just probably going to get bigger and more
0: scary and you would have seen this experience time and time again that when people open up and they have this courage to be able to say this is my fear or this is what my experience is then it allows other people to go oh thank goodness it's not just me like it's so nice to know that you're experiencing this too um you know i heard a recent story from one of the the um, managing directors of one of the big companies here in australia and they shared in their all staff uh, meeting from their home over Zoom, which is the world that we're living in right now, and shared how they were really struggling um, mm. with the current situation. And for the first time, people in the organization felt, oh, it's okay that I feel that too. And that ability yeah. to be able to have someone share with courage allows us to kind of feel what we feel at the same time.
1: I think it's the most healing and it's. I think it's the biggest gift you can give to another human is to to see and hear and acknowledge somebody else's fear, mm. and to help kind of hold it, especially if you're working in a team and and you need to be able to hold that stuff together. I think, yeah.
0: Oh, I love it. And the last yeah. question that you ask:
1: What do you need?
0: Oh, what do you that. need?
1: Like, what do we need from each other? What do we need um, as an organization? Like, what do we need? And that, I think, kind of brings the capability and the practicality piece into it. So it's like, all right, so we're talking about what we're proud of, like what we're good at, what our, you know, the humanity and the dignity and where we want to go and our fears. We've kind of acknowledged that, okay, so what do we need? How do we then move forward knowing all of this stuff? Mm. And I think it helps give such clarity on on how to move forward and how to grow because you can feel overwhelmed and just so stuck mm. and fear and isolation and it's um paralyzing
0: mm. and that's why the language yeah. you, you're talking about here is empowered language empowered, empowered language yeah. helps a person not feel paralyzed or stuck it helps them be able to, yeah. to feel like i can move forward from here knowing that yeah. there's someone that um, and, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, you said, um, I've got to remember that, you know, where the people are coming from a starting point. And, and one of the things I often say to people is, um, every journey to is also a journey from, so like wherever yeah. we're taking people to, we've got to understand they're actually coming from a place. Um, Melinda Gates, um, has a great quote where she says, you've got to remember that people's, um, cups aren't empty. And before we try to pour in more, we need to understand what's already in their cup. And this is the same kind of conversation that you're having here, right? Is, is coming uh, from the place of recognizing that people are coming from somewhere and do we understand where they're coming from?
1: Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, once you understand where people are coming from, then you can see where their strengths and their abilities can lie. Because whatever they've endured in the past, you know, you can use that as an organization moving forward as well. And I think that's when these, these questions can really help, kind of get the best out of who's working in your team, who's with you, mm. where have they come from, what have they done already, you know, what are they proud of, what are they hoping for, you know, how can we use all of that to move forward? Yeah, I love that.
0: And that's that's. Um, the power of, of empowered language is that we can help collectively move people forward um, and move people forward in a really positive place. But one of the things I'm, I'm noticing is that the language or the, yeah, the language of empowering, empowered words is through the lens of curiosity and it's through the lens Mm -hmm. of questions rather than the others, which are around the lens of telling people or informing people. This one tends to be more with a curiosity attached to it.
1: Yeah, I like to think of it as being open-hearted as well and like open-minded, mm. open-hearted and I love that sense of curiosity as well. But I think yeah, it it makes everybody bigger and the space bigger and then the possibilities bigger and then the ideas bigger and the potential stronger. Mm. Yeah, so I love that sense of openness that comes with questions and curiosity.
0: What do you yeah. reckon stops people um, from sitting in that place or what stops a person from being able to, I guess, be open-hearted and being able to to share vulnerably um, in some of these experiences?
1: Mm, I think maybe people are uncomfortable with vulnerability mm. because they think it might hurt them. They're um, maybe avoiding the conflict of the pain that they think will be revealed. But I've just... I seen just time and time again that the opposite is true like the more open you are the better it is for everybody Mm. like if you can do it in a way that's safe and I think there's another perception that um open-heartedness and empoweredness you know takes more time and there's no not enough time and and the health world and medicine you know we don't have enough time to care and caring is kind of seen in this as this fluffy kind of extra yeah. piece to, to healthcare and, and it's it's not it's just like it's, we need to create space for open-heartedness and curiosity but i think we're not because we're so stuck with schedules and mm. you know structure and systems but we're not building this space into our structures and systems which i think is almost the very first thing that's needed yeah yeah
0: and this this space that you operate in allows people um, to really connect with others right to move beyond conversations with somebody else to sit in a space with them to deeply connect
1: yeah and it's amazing because it then also gives people the freedom to get things wrong you know especially for a health professional to be able to say look i i don't have all the answers and here's why like or Mm. i wish this was different um they kind of sit with with the person rather than feeling the pressure of fixing and making it better and and being blamed for, for not doing it right or getting it right. Or I don't know, it's, it's, we, we love having something to blame because it makes us feel better. I think when things go wrong, but that hurts everybody.
0: I want to let that just phrase sink in for a moment because that in itself is is a huge thought. And I, I love that when, when we started this conversation, we were chatting about what, what are the big topics we could talk about? And it started with this idea of connection. And maybe it was a bit about courage and then we kind of landed on language. And I think what we've touched on here is this idea that language, when we get it right, when it's empowering to those around us, it builds connection and it inspires courage and it evokes vulnerability and it brings people together and it gives ourselves permission to get it wrong because we've allowed that Mm -hmm. space of connection and community with others. Like language makes the difference.
1: I do it does and it's actually really simple and we try and we complicate everything we try and complicate so much and I think especially with leadership and leaders are burning out because they they they're holding so much um and so much responsibility that they can let go of and share if they can just be brave enough to be honest about their own experience and and that they're afraid too and that we're human like we're we're all human we're proud and we're hopeful and we're deathly fearful and we all need things and um whether you're a leader or not or or a follower or a group or whatever like we, Mm. we have these same basic needs and language is the key to kind of unlock that
0: for each other yeah Rach, this has just been such a, a valuable conversation. And I know um, people who are listening to this will have conversations around Okay, now how do I start to identify the language that we're using? How do we become more human in the way that we can communicate and connect with one another? How do we create spaces of vulnerability and, and safe spaces? And and I know mm-hmm. that's a whole bunch of the work that you do with people and teams. And mm-hmm. so um, like yeah. in every episode, I encourage people to reach out and connect with you on LinkedIn. I'll put all the details for you and your website um, for people to be able to connect as Thank well. You. Um, but Yeah. I just want to say a huge thank you for, obviously, number one, for sharing part of your story, which is your own vulnerability, uh, but also just providing some really practical insights around some questions we could be asking and some of the space that we can operate in to to ultimately communicate and connect better with people. Oh,
1: it's my absolute pleasure, Shane. I love this and I love this podcast. So thanks for doing the work that you're
0: doing. Oh, thank you. Pleasure
2: and a privilege.
0: That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.